Amen. Our reading from God's Holy Word this morning comes from Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, we're going to pick up the reading in verse 1 and continue to verse 13. This is God's Word. And he said to them, that's Jesus, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Father, we're grateful for your word. It is a lamp unto our feet. It is a light unto our way. Indeed, how would we know how to go? How would we know where to go if it weren't for you speaking to us? Would you now, through the Spirit, help us to behold, even with the eye of faith, something of what Peter, James, and John saw centuries, even millennia ago now? The glory of the face of Jesus Christ. Would you help us now by the spirits to be transported into the heavenly places to behold the glory of Christ and to find our own hearts changed a little bit more by that glory, growing from one degree of glory to the next until we are with you in glory. May today be a foretaste of that day as we peer into the mysteries now of your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. There's an African-American pastor, friend of mine from Laurel, Mississippi, where I grew up. I got the chance to worship with them a number of times. They were connected to a mission in town called the Christian Food Mission, which helped the... Um, the, the poor and underemployed within our community with daily meals, especially those who were older. 
um, and who were on a fixed income and didn't have enough to be able to take care of some of their most basic needs. And my family volunteered for that organization a number of years, and we got to know a number of pastors and folks in the area. But this dear um, African-American pastor just meant the world to us. He, he was one of those men, and you, you know these men, you know these women, uh, who just have the joy of the Lord on their face. Like they don't even have to say anything, they don't have to do anything, but you're in their presence and you just, it's like I want to spend more time with them because something of the glory of God and his joy just rubs off on me when I'm with them. Well, that was, that was this man every time we were, we were with him. Occasionally there would be uh, little chapel services that he would host in our home church built uh, a bit of a relationship with, uh, with his church. And he had uh, very regularly in the midst of a service, if he was listening to someone uh, else preach, but sometimes when he would listen to himself preach, he would make a point or he would hear a point, and then he would say quite loudly, glory. That's what he would say. He would say glory. Now, we don't do that quite as often in our tradition, you understand. We don't hear those words quite as much from some of you here in the congregation. I will. There are a few of you who will... Amen, quietly, um, at times uh, in the midst of a message. And sometimes you'll come afterwards to me and you'll go, was that okay that I did that? That I just sort of came out as I wasn't sure if it was okay. It's okay. It's totally okay. But he, he would very loudly say, glory. And he, he would urge us. He would, he would say to us, even as we were uh, around him and being influenced by him, he says, we all must be looking out for glory sightings. Glory sightings, that's what he referred to them as. The Lord showing up in glory in our midst, whether it's someone coming to know the Lord or an answer uh, to prayer or a providential uh, unfolding or happening in our lives where we can unmistakably note that God's fingerprints are all over this. It's a glory sighting. And he would say, glory. In many ways this morning, this passage is all about that. It is all about Glory. This, this amazing coming together of the beauty and the majesty, the righteousness, the holiness, the grace, all of the richness of who God is shining forth in the face of Jesus Christ on that Mount of Transfiguration. Indeed, if my friend had seen it, he would have said, Glory. Glory. As we look at this text together today, I want to look at it in two ways with you. I want you to see, first of all, the revelation of glory. The revelation of glory, because that is what is happening in the text. But then I want you to see, secondly, the glory of revelation. The glory of revelation. We're going to see first the revelation of glory, and then we're going to see, secondly, the glory of revelation. I'm going to start with this revelation of glory, and, and actually I'm going to encourage you, if you have a Bible with you, to open it up. If you don't, you have one in front of you. The Pew Bible really be helpful to just glance back at Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8 actually ended with a bit of an unusual note, uh, Jesus giving an indication that after he had given these challenging words to his disciples, we looked at these last week, if you were with us, the words, if you take up your, if you were to follow me, you must take up your cross and follow me, right? 
You, you must walk the crucified path that I walk. That's what it means to be one of my followers. And undoubtedly, a, a very significant and weighty word that the disciples heard from, from Jesus, the crowd that had gathered heard from Jesus that we heard last week. But then there's a note at the end of that text where he speaks about his second coming. He says in verse 38 of Mark chapter 8, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man, that's Jesus' favorite term for himself, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes, notice, in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. There's a note of glory at the end of chapter 8. Now, when you read that, under, understandably, that sounds a lot like the second coming, doesn't it? When he comes in the glory of his Father, right, with the throng of angels. I mean, we're thinking of the heavens opening up. We're thinking of the great white throne judgment. And appropriately, we should do so. In fact, he's giving an indication when he says, I will be ashamed of you. If you are ashamed of me, he's giving indication of the day where he's going to judge. This is second, second coming language. If we were to compare texts in the Gospels, Mark 13, Matthew 24, other um, eschatological, that means end times, other end times texts that speak about the second coming, you would see language such as this. Okay, so it's understandable that Jesus is speaking in that way. But this is what makes 9-1, the verse that we started with today, so puzzling. And it's why I didn't deal with it last week. I remember in every service if I said this or not, but we read it last week and I was like, I'm not going to deal with it, I'm going to deal with it this week. And I want you to see 9-1, and notice first about 9-1, the fact that Mark gives a break in the text. Do you notice that? If you've got a red letter Bible, you definitely notice this, because there are, there are five black words there at the beginning of 9-1, and he said to them, and it's like he broke a little bit from 8.38 to 9.1. And he said to them another word. There's a break in the text. Mark is making this very clear. Then he says, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here, those that are present when Jesus spoke these words, who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Okay. Now it seems very clear that Jesus is speaking about the second coming at the end of chapter 8. Now, in 9-1, he starts talking about this kingdom coming with power. And some of you who are standing here aren't even going to taste death until you see that kingdom come. It would be easy to draw the conclusion that Jesus is talking about the same thing in 8:38 as he is in 9-1. He's talking about the second coming, which will be glorious. The coming of angels, the glory of his Father. Now, some of you won't taste death until that happens. That wouldn't be understandable to read it that way, wouldn't it? Here's the problem with that. If we read it that way, Jesus is wrong. Okay? Jesus is wrong, right? If it's the second coming he's speaking of, some of you won't die until you see the second coming. Guess what? They're dead. In fact, they've been dead for 2,000 years. And it's, it's, a, it's a pretty good reason to believe that Jesus is not wrong about what he's saying here. In fact, if we draw the conclusion that Jesus is wrong about what he's saying here, we've got bigger problems on our hands, textually and theologically to work from. So I'm going to move past that interpretation of the text to what some would understand, verse 1 of chapter 9, to be speaking about Pentecost. Right Now that would make sense as well. 
Pentecost is a time where the kingdom of God comes in power, right? The Spirit of God descends. Uh, Peter and some of the disciples are there at Pentecost and they see the power come. In fact, Peter is the instrument that the Lord uses for the establishment of the church in Acts chapter 2. And the power of God is revealed. It would be understandable to understand that he's speaking here of Pentecost. Some of you will not taste death. Some of you are going to be present uh, for that. I do think that's partly in view. But if you look, I think, at Mark's point in this text, I think he's trying to say something different than us, maybe even than the other gospel writers by positioning the transfiguration in this, in this uh, moment in Mark's gospel. He has just taken a very hard word about discipleship from Jesus. Take up your cross daily and follow me. That's what it means to be one of my followers. And then immediately after that text, he positions the story of the transfiguration. And he positions the story of the transfiguration in a very time-oriented way. Notice verse 2. And after six days. Notice how specific Mark is there. He's very specific. Mark is never that specific when he writes. It's never that specific. In fact, apart from the passion narrative, we never see Mark be this specific about a time connection between things. It seems as if he's saying the glory and the power of the kingdom that is coming that some will see six days later is revealed to a handful of them. It's called the transfiguration. It's called the transfiguration. It's actually a glimpse of what's going to happen in some ways at Pentecost. The power and the glory of Christ revealed through the Spirit. And a glimpse of what's going to happen at the end of times. It's a breaking in of the end into the present. It's a, it's a, it's a pulling back the veil for a second to help you see what is really true. And think of how important this would have been for his disciples to be there at this moment. They have just heard a crushing word about Christ, their Messiah, the one in whom they have trusted in is the one who is going to be rejected, suffer, and die. And if they're going to follow him, they're going to have to suffer and ultimately take up their cross and follow him. You can imagine some soul care is probably needed for the disciples at this point. (laughs) Some encouragement would be nice. Six days later, Jesus says, I want to peel back the curtain a little bit and show you that though there is a cross, there is also a glory that follows it. There is a majestic end of the story that reveals the power and the glory of the grace of what I have come to establish in my kingdom. That's what this passage is about. Jesus revealing his glory. Revealing his glory to a people who are beat down, who are discouraged, who are overwhelmed, who are confused by his words. That he's going to be rejected and suffer and and die. And that they too are going to have to follow that path in discipleship. He's now showing them, listen, that's not the end of the story. The end of the story is not the suffering and death. The end of the story will be a revelation of glory. From cross to crown. From grave to the skies as we sing. 
So much so that right now this morning as we worship the Lord, He is at the right hand of the Father, ascended into His glory, and will one day come again to judge the living and the dead and remake this old earth and old heavens into a new heavens and a new earth where we will enjoy unmitigated, unneeded mediation with regards to the glory of Jesus. That's where we're headed. You can imagine what a bolster this would have been to the disciples ultimately later when they share this to the rest of the disciples after the resurrection. Yeah, Jesus peeled back the veil for a minute and showed us his glory. There's reason to hope. And what an encouragement it must be for us when we realize that the pains and the sufferings of this life are at the end of the story. But when God begins to reveal his glory to us, when we begin to see it, we have a reason to take up the cross and not become overly discouraged, not grow weary in doing good, but continue to faithfully plod picking up that cross because we know that's not the end of the story. A resurrection is ahead. That's what Jesus is doing here. In the pastoral care of the soul of his disciples, he's revealing to them his glory and notice how he does it. Uh, this, in, this incredible term, this, this term of, of, of transfiguration, not, not, not a term that we use very uh, regularly. It's actually uh, a Greek term from where we get the English word metamorphosis is underneath it. And when we think of a, a metamorphosis, it's often used in science, isn't it, of, a, of say, of a, of a caterpillar, right, who... Who goes into the cocoon and then and then later breaks forth from the cocoon and is a stunning and beautiful butterfly. This this transfiguration, this remarkable change in appearance and in um, form. That's what it is that we see happening here with Jesus. And notice as the disciples here see Christ, that ultimately uh, they see a beautiful brightness about him. Mark makes uh, much of his clothes. He says they become radiant and intensely uh, white. So much so, he doesn't want you to think Clorox did the job. He says more than any bleach, more than any launderer could do, this is a kind of white that is supernatural in nature that is shining forth from Jesus. And then even though Mark doesn't note it, Luke and Matthew both note the account of Jesus' face. Do you notice in our service, several times in our service so far, we've talked about the shining face of the Lord. It's it's connected directly here to the transfiguration. Uh, Luke says his face was dazzling white. Matthew says it shone like the sun. Now what's interesting about the unfolding of the gospel of of Mark and each of the gospels with regards to the person and, and ministry of Jesus is that the gospels move... From concealing to revealing. That's, it's really the movement of the gospel. Slowly but surely as you turn the pages of the gospel of Mark, what are you seeing? More of who Jesus is. They're moving from what's concealed to what is increasingly revealed. Um, even Jesus' flesh is referred to by the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 10 as a veil. It's like a cloak that he wears that in a very real sense uh, covers up what is his ultimate essence and glory. 
And as we turn the pages of the gospel, more of that glory gets revealed to us, ultimately going to his ascension to the heavenly places, ultimately ending in his return. The the whole of the narrative of the Bible, in fact, is moving from concealment to ultimate revelation so that we could say at the end of time, we know even as we are known. That's the goal, isn't it? Complete and full, holy, perfect knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. At this moment, the veil is being pulled back. The ordinariness of Jesus is giving away to the extraordinariness of Jesus. Now, why do I say the ordinariness of Jesus? Well, the writer of Isaiah tells us that Jesus had a form just like a man. That he had no majesty that we should look at him. That he had no beauty that we should desire him. If you had walked by Jesus on the sidewalk in downtown Franklin, you wouldn't have said, Oh my goodness! (laughs) You would have said, That's a man. And in fact, there's no reason to see that he had a striking appearance. This is why it's a metamorphosis in this text. There's seeing something that's behind what is normally seen. But here's how Jesus is so different from, say, uh, the caterpillar who turns into a butterfly. Now, he's very different than the caterpillar that turns into a butterfly in many ways. But here's one way. Uh, The caterpillar is literally becoming something different than he was. Whereas Jesus, in this metamorphosis, is actually revealing who he has always been. Who he has always been. He is at this moment not becoming divine. He is at this moment revealing his divinity. He is not in this moment becoming glorious. He is in this moment showing forth his glory. That's why this son of Mary, this Nazarene, this man of men is the true Son and the divine God, so much so that the Nicene Creed would say, He is light of light, very God of very God. I have to believe that John, in the writing of his gospel, in the opening pages of it, when he says, we have seen His glory, speaking of Christ, we have seen His glory from the only God of the Father, full of grace and truth, that Peter, James, and John, John being one of the witnesses of the transfiguration, has in view at least in part, if not in full, this moment. We have seen His glory. We have witnessed it. He'll write a similar thing later when he writes his letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Now, if we didn't believe this just in the appearing of the transfiguration, just in the glory that's revealed, certainly we would believe it by the voice that comes from heaven. The voice that comes out of the cloud in the context of this passage. This is the ancient glory cloud of the Old Testament. That pillar of cloud that led the people of Israel by day and that pillar of fire by night. As they wandered in the wilderness, that cloud that descended into the tabernacle and later into the temple is right now descending on the mount and is none other than the presence of God. And something of what is reminiscent of Jesus' baptism, we hear uh, the Father say, this is my son, in case this is not clear. This is my son. And then he gives them a word that they so need to hear. And friends, don't we need to hear this? Listen to him. 
Have the disciples had some trouble listening? They've had some trouble listening. And when they've listened, have they had trouble understanding? They've had some real trouble understanding. Listen to him. <laughs> this is my son. Listen to him. And we may actually see a little change in the disciples as they come down the mountain. You know, they're puzzling about this resurrection still as they're coming down the mountain. trying to figure out. But at least they asked Jesus some questions this time. Hey, can you tell us about the Elijah thing? Can you tell? We were told to listen to you. Do you have any info for us on the Elijah thing? We may have some students developing in this text. The disciples learning to sit at a deeper way at the feet of Jesus. This is the revelation of the glory. But I want you to see, secondly, the glory of the revelation. Now listen, this is, this is important because what I want you to see in this text, this text is chock full of what we would call biblical theology. Okay, a term that means the theology that is, that is structured and designed according to the narrative or the unfolding of the Bible. Meaning to say from Genesis to Revelation, there is a concealment to Revelation over who God is. That arc that we see in the Bible is sometimes referred to as biblical theology. The unfolding of God throughout time as presented in the Word. And this passage is full of biblical theology and it's why it's both mysterious and wonderful all at the same time. And I think two, one of the mysteries is the revelation of Moses and Elijah here, isn't it? These two uh, figures. Why, why are they here? Why is Joshua not here? You know, why is Abraham not here? Why is, why is Moses and Elijah the ones that are shown up here on the Mount of Transfiguration? Well, I think at the most uh, basic of level, um, we are uh, meant to understand uh, Moses and Elijah as these, these two pillars of the Old Testament that in many ways speak to the entirety of the Old Testament. Uh, Moses, the very first writer of the Old Testament, who is responsible for Genesis to Deuteronomy. He established the law of which the entire paradigm of salvation flows from as he brings the people of God out of Egypt to the land of Canaan. We all are wanderers uh, out of, coming out of slavery, headed to a promised land called the new heavens and the new earth. All of that comes out of the first five books of the Old Testament. That came from the pen and the ministry, ultimately, of Moses. But Elijah, if you were to follow the story of Elijah, his story actually is very, very similar to Moses. He, he is a prophet who leads the people of God out of an estranged time, an exilic time, leading them back to the, to the glory. He does many miracles as Moses does. He stands as the prophet among all the prophets. So, so Moses is this paradigmatic redeeming figure in the first five books of the Old Testament. And Elijah stands for all of the prophets, this, this prophet among all of the prophets. Now, you catch this at the end of Luke 24, right? When Jesus is walking with his disciples after the resurrection on the road to Emmaus. And he begins to ask them questions about what they're talking about. They don't recognize him yet. They've been kept from seeing him at the end of Luke. And as he walks with them, he queries, what are you guys talking about? And they talk, tell him all of what happened. Hey, the one that we've been following is dead, and now we got this strange news from the women that he's risen from the dead. We don't know what to do with any of this. And then it says that Jesus says, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that Moses and the prophets wrote. Okay, 
all of the Old Testament. You don't understand this because you actually don't get the story of the Old Testament. You don't understand its unfolding. And it says he took the scriptures and beginning with Moses through the prophets, he unfolded the things concerning himself. When you see Moses and Elijah here on the Mount of Transfiguration speaking with Jesus, isn't that fascinating? You actually are seeing the whole of the Old Testament give witness to Jesus. That's what you're seeing. The whole of the Old Testament giving witness to Jesus. Now, in order to see that, you've got to see that unfolding, right? That's what we would call biblical theology, where we're going, oh, that's what's going on in this text. But even more than that, there is direct connection between Moses and Elijah with the ministry of Jesus. Now, I want to give you a really clear text where we see this wonderfully. You might mark this in your notes. There's no need to turn to it now. We don't have time to turn to it now. Exodus chapter 24, though, is a key text with regards to this. So you can see a few things here. In Exodus 24, this is after um, Moses has already gotten the Ten Commandments. Remember, that happened in Exodus 20. He's now been called back up the mountain to meet with God. That's Mount Sinai. As he goes up the mountain, you know who he takes with him? He takes three of his most trusted servants. Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu. Three of his most trusted servants in Exodus 24, they go up on the mountain. They're there on the mountain, guess how many days? Six days. You notice a key mark in Mark's text here of saying six days, right? He's drawing this text out. They're there six days, and on the seventh day, do you know what happens? A cloud appears. Right on the top of the mountain in Exodus 24. And God speaks to Moses the promises of God's word from the cloud. Okay, When we're reading in Mark chapter 9 the strange things that are happening here, Mark is taking us back into the history of Jesus' ministry and the unfolding of redemption in history. And he is saying, we have a revisitation of the presence of God as seen on Mount Sinai. They go up on the Mount of Transfiguration, a voice from heaven, six days, three confidants, revelation of the glory of God. This is Moses redone. This is a better Moses. In fact, we were told to look for a better Moses. You remember Deuteronomy chapter 18. Moses says to the people of Israel, God will raise up a prophet like me from among you. It is to him, isn't this interesting, you shall listen. (laughs) The same words that the Father is going to say to the disciples there on the Mount of Transfiguration. Isn't it clear that the prophet which Moses long ago foretold would come is now the greater Moses, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is now before us in Mark chapter 9? Well, it's the same parallels in Elijah. Think of Elijah's story, right? 1 Kings chapter 18, where does he go to experience the glory of God? Up on a mountain. It's there where he faces the prophets of Baal and ultimately is victorious as God shows forth his glory. But in the next chapter, in chapter 19, you might remember that Jezebel threatened to kill him and he fled into the wilderness. And when he fled into the wilderness, he cried out to God in despair. And then he fell asleep. 
Interestingly, Luke tells us that the disciples were originally called on the Mount of Transfiguration to pray with Jesus. And while he called them to pray, guess what they did? They slept. Only Luke tells us that. He actually tells us they slept pretty hard. He says they were heavy with sleep. That's the language of Luke. As Elijah is sleeping, God comes to him, and he comes in the language of the angel of the Lord. That's code language for the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. Comes to him, and you know what he does? He feeds him bread, and he feeds him water. What does that remind you of? Manna, maybe? Maybe water from a rock? Maybe something of Moses is playing out in the story of Elijah? And in that, he tells Elijah to go up on a mountain. He says, I want to strengthen you for your 40 days journey. 40 days? How long was Moses on the mountain? 40 days, right. And then Elijah makes the journey to Mount Horeb, he's told. And we go, oh, Mount Horeb. What's that? Another name for Mount Sinai. The same mountain that Moses was on. Elijah's on. And when Elijah goes up on the mountain, what does God do? calls him out into the cleft of the rock, passes his glory before him, and instructs him in the plan to redeem his people Israel. Sound familiar? (laughs) Why is Elijah and Moses here? Because Jesus is the ultimate answer to those plans. He is the ultimate fulfillment to what God had always planned to do with his people. Redeem them And make them his own. Isn't it interesting that in Matthew and in Luke we're told a little bit about the conversation that Jesus actually has with Moses and Elijah. It's really fascinating, isn't it, here in Mark, if you look there in in, in Mark chapter 9 and you look at verse 4. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses and they were what? Talking with Jesus. It's just fascinating. They were, they were talking with Jesus. And, and maybe you ask yourself, I'd love to know what they were talking about. Like that's, I mean, that's a, you know, I'd love to be a fly on that wall, so to speak, you know, so I can hear in. What does Moses and Elijah and Jesus talk about when they have a small group meeting? You know, what, what is it that they do? Um, well, interestingly, Luke gives us a glimpse into that. And so, and so does Matthew give us a little bit of indication. It says they were talking with Jesus, and Luke mentions in verses 30 to 31, um, he says, they spoke of Jesus' departure, which he was about to accomplish. Now that word departure seems a little odd, right? He spoke of his departure, ultimately probably his, his ascension, where he's going to join them again in the heavenlies after he's completed his mission. Except when you begin to do the work on the Greek and connect it to the Septuagint, you realize that the very word for departure is the word exodus. They talk to him about his exodus. The exodus that he's accomplishing. Not the one that Elijah did. Not the one that Moses did. But the one that you see hints of in Moses and Elijah. He spoke to them about his exodus. That he is redeeming a people out of slavery. He is going to carry them through a wilderness wandering. He's going to provide for them every step of the way. And he's ultimately going to bring them to the greatest fulfillment of the promised land. And Elijah and Moses, you know with Jesus, are in a glorious and rapturous conversation about the power of God's redeeming love. That from the beginning of time, 
He has come to save for himself a people. I love the way Alec Motier puts it. Great Old Testament professor. He says, think about it. Think of what an Israelite would say on the way to Canaan, on the way to the promised land. Having come out of the Red Sea and so forth. Here's what an Israelite would say. Who are you if we ask them? He would say, well, I was in a foreign land. One who was under the sentence of death in bondage. But I took shelter under the blood of the Lamb. Our mediator has led us out and we have crossed over. And now we are on our way to a promised land. We're not there yet, but he's given us his law and he's making us a community. He's given us the tabernacle by which we can experience grace and forgiveness. And his presence is always with us in the cloud. And he's going to go with us until we get home. Now let me ask you. Is your story any different than that one? That's your story. That's exactly what Jesus is doing for us. We're in the midst of that journey right now. That's the grace that's being poured out on us. That's why I love it when I see the disciples fumbling along in this passage, just not getting it over and over and over again, and Jesus persistently pressing into them and loving them, answering their questions, caring for them, because he is committed to be with them, never leave them, nor forsake them until they get all the way home. Do you know he's not threatened by your questions? He's not threatened by the ways that you misunderstand? By the fact that you get answers right and you get all the explanations wrong? By the fact that you today might actually experience a sweetness of God's glory in the midst of this sanctuary and it be drained of you by the later this afternoon? And that you'll need it all again tomorrow? And he'll be there with you again? To speak those rich truths back into your heart until they stick. Until the glory has so captivated your heart that you will know him even as you are known. That's the path that we're headed on. Do you know that's what Revelation 21-22 tells us? The very end of time, the Apostle John says, there's going to be a new Jerusalem and there's not going to be a need for a temple. The Lord God Almighty, who is the Lamb, will be our temple. That new Jerusalem won't need a sun because the city doesn't need a sun. For the glory of God in Christ will illuminate for always. Do you know, when we see this glory, we begin to see the clarity by which we're called to live. We begin to see what really matters in life. We begin to see as glorious as a Tom Brady pass may be. And um, as glorious as... um, Some pluckings of Ricky Skaggs might be on the banjo. And there is something of a glory in that. And and even earlier, when when you begin to realize when, when you see the power of the things of which God has done, that he's redeeming these things and bringing them into his glory, you begin to realize that that glory only ever points to the ultimate glory. And only to the degree that we allow those things to point us to that ultimate glory will we learn to enjoy those things rightly here. Not try to get too much of them here. But instead use them as instruments and means by which we might actually give praise and worship to God. You see, God even redeems our mistakes. I realized earlier when I said Starry Night and Monet that I had missed uh, the connection of uh, painter. It's actually Van Gogh, right? How many of you caught that? A number of you caught that? Yeah. You're smart. You're so smart. And God redeems that. God redeems that, doesn't he? 
Isn't that beautiful? Praise be to our God. When we get things right, he redeems it for his glory and humbles us and exalts himself. When we get things wrong, he covers it and he continues to grow us after his likeness. That's the God we want to follow, isn't it? That's the God we want to follow. Father in heaven, would you keep us now in this truth? Would you give us eyes to behold this glory and love it and walk according to its beauty? Would you even right now begin to stir our affections for you? In a way that begins to see the amazing portrait that you've presented to us in the Word. Would you make us so students of the Bible that we would, our jaws would drop each time that we begin to see how majestic, how glorious your revelation is? And then as we see this revelation, we begin to see the glory of the Christ who wrote it. Through the power of the Spirit, men being carried along by your grace. Lord, even now, would you begin to write glory stories into the lives of each of us here in this room that we might point and say, I see a glory sighting. And we might even more faithfully, like my brother and friend, say, glory, as we see you show up in and around us. Lord, come and meet us in this, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.